Happy Lord's Day. It's the Lord's Day. We're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We're going to talk about the resurrection a lot today, but this is what saints have um, celebrated from all of history ever since Jesus rose from the dead. The church has gathered on Sundays to think about Jesus, to hear his word, and to hear from Jesus through the preaching of his word. And so we do that together. So, because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please take your Bible and open it to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17, if you don't have a Bible, there's a hardcover pew Bible in the chair in front of you. Turn to page 872, page 872 in that hardcover Bible. I'm reading out of the Christian Standard Bible. If you want to follow in a CSB and you don't have a CSB, again, just take that Bible in front of you. Matthew chapter 17 on page 872. 17 is the chapter number. That's the big number. When I say verses 9 through 13, those are the small numbers if this is your first time looking through a Bible and you're not familiar with verses and chapters. That's how it works. All right. So we're going to look here at, um, we, we talked about the transfiguration. Uh, Jesus came and told the disciples he's the Messiah, told them that he's going to die, told them they're going to take up their cross and follow him. Um, Peter was not having it. The disciples were not comfortable with it. So Jesus transforms and transfigures right in front of them, in front of three of them. And we talked about that last Sunday. You could listen to that sermon on the podcast or on YouTube if you want to catch up there. We're going to pick up in verses 9 through 13. After this glorious vision for James, Peter, and John of seeing Jesus, they're on their way down the mountain. And here's what happens in the conversation. Verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, don't tell anyone about the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Don't tell anyone what you saw. Verse 10. So the disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah is coming and will restore everything. He replied, but I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they didn't recognize him. On the contrary, they did whatever they pleased to him. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Father, help us to see wonderful things here in these four or five verses. We pray that you'd open our eyes to Jesus that we would hear from him and see him and want to speak about him to others. Lord Jesus, you told us, even in our fighter verse two weeks ago, that you are the vine and we are the branches. The one who remains in you and you in him produces much fruit because without you and apart from you, we can't do anything. Lord, we want to bear fruit in preaching and listening. We want to bear fruit in thinking and repenting and believing and obeying. And so, Lord Jesus, we need you. We need your power. We need your spirit. We need your grace. So come now and help us and help our friends even who are not Christian to come to know Jesus even this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. Main goal for the sermon, tell people about God's son Jesus and disciple people toward him. That's the main goal of the sermon. Tell people about God's son Jesus and disciple people toward Jesus. Why? Two reasons. Because the Son of Man rose from the dead. And secondly, because Elijah has restored all things. Okay? Because Jesus, the Son of Man, rose from the dead, verse 9. And because 
Elijah has restored all things, verses 10 through 13, okay? So main goal, if you're a Christian, listen to me. This is what God, I think God intends from this sermon and from this text for you. If you're a Christian, tell other people about God's son, Jesus, and disciple people toward Jesus, to follow Jesus and know and love Jesus. Now, if you're not a Christian, here's the main goal for you. So if you're not a Christian, thank you for being here. You don't have to be here. You don't feel obligated to be here, but we're glad you're here. God actually ordained and, and planned that you would be here today to hear this message. And here's the main goal I would have for you. Follow Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Give your life to Jesus. Okay, I'm gonna tell the Christians here to tell non-Christians about Jesus so that they would follow Jesus. So if you're not a Christian, that's what I'm telling you. Follow Jesus and trust Jesus because he rose from the dead and because God has and will restore all things. So the same reasons go for you. So let's go now to the passage. In verse nine, you see here in verse nine, it says, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, here's the main goal of the sermon, don't tell anyone about the vision until the son of man is raised from the dead. So what's the command? Don't what? Don't tell anyone. That Jesus is God's son, that the glory, that Jesus has the Shekinah glory of God, that he is God the son, that he, he transformed right in front of Peter, James, and John. Don't tell anyone. That's the command. Now, if that's the command, the command of this passage is don't tell anyone. PJ, the main command you have for us is tell people. Are you just disobeying the Bible and you're just choosing to do the opposite of what the Bible says? That's a fair question. This helps us realize that we're actually reading the Bible in context. There's a story going on here. You can't just read any passage of the Bible, take any command, rip it out of the Bible, and just say, I need to apply it to my life. Because the context might not match. So here the command is, don't tell anyone. What I'm telling you is God is telling you today on the authority of first, um, Matthew 17, 13, 9 through 13, God is telling you to actually tell everyone. So here, don't tell anyone. The command I'm telling you is to tell everyone. Uh, now, why? What does, it, what does the verse say? Let's finish the verse. Don't tell anyone about the vision. What's the next word? Until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So there's the command for them. Don't tell anyone that Jesus rose, uh, don't tell anyone that Jesus is God's Son in this vision until Jesus rises from the dead. If he's going to rise from the dead, before he rises from the dead, he has to what? He has to die. And for him to be killed, he has to be arrested and suffer and die and then rise from the dead. And then you can tell everyone about this vision. Now, because Jesus has come, he has suffered, he was arrested, he did die on the cross for sinners, and he did rise from the dead. He's already done that. The command for us now and the command for the disciples, if they're reading Matthew chapter 17 in the first century, if they're first reading this for the very first time, the command to them in light of the whole book is tell. Tell people that Jesus um, is who he is and wh who you know him to be. So last week, the main command, when the glory cloud came and interrupted Peter, the main command was what? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And the command was? Listen to him. That was the main command last week from last sermon is listen to Jesus. So for this week, we want to obey that by listening to Jesus in verse 9 through 13. And Jesus is telling us, tell people about him. Now, why? Two reasons. Number one, because the Son of Man rose from the dead. Look at verse 9. Don't tell anyone about the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. I want to do a few things here. I want to think about what he means by Son of Man, and then what are the implications of the fact that this man who was raised from the dead is telling us now to tell people about Jesus. So first, to think about the Son of Man, keep your finger here 
in Matthew chapter 17. We're doing Bible study today. So go to Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. So turn to the left in your Bible, Daniel chapter 7. Now, um, if anyone gets there with a pew Bible, shout out the numbers so that I could tell everyone else where, where, where um, Daniel 7 is. We're going to look at this Danielic vision of the Son of Man. We're going to take some time here. So keep your finger in Matthew 17, and we'll get to work here right now in Daniel 7. So in Daniel 7, you have this vision. In Daniel 7, 1 through 8, you have this vision of four beasts. There are these four powerful beasts. And this last beast, these are representing different kingdoms. And these beasts have horns, 10 horns. The last beast has 10 horns. And this last beast is the most powerful of all. Okay, and these, these beasts are, um, are, um, are wreaking havoc. And then, as Daniel sees this vision of four beasts, one after another after another to this fourth and most powerful beast, then read Daniel 7, 9. Okay, you guys there? What page is that? 789. Okay, so page 789 if you have a pew Bible. Daniel 7, verse 9. Listen to this vision. I want you to imagine it. So here's Daniel. What does he see? As I kept watching, thrones were set in place. And the Ancient of Days took his seat, that's God, took his seat on the throne. His clothing was white like snow, the hair of his head like whitest wool. His throne was a flaming fire. So a man here sitting on a flame of fire, the Ancient of Days. A river of fire was flowing and coming out of his presence. So this throne of fire and a river of, 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 of fire is flowing from this throne of fire. Can you picture it? Thousands upon thousands served this ancient of days sitting on this fiery throne with river of fire flowing out. Thousands upon thousands served him. 10,000 times 10,000, just people everywhere stood right before this ancient of days on his fiery throne. And the court was convened and the books were opened. So when you, when you have someone sitting on a throne, who sits on a throne? A what? A king. But now these books are opened and the court was convened. What is this a picture of? Judgment. Now, back then, now we here in America, we have the legislative branch, we have the uh, executive branch, we have the judicial branch, and so the, the nine Supreme Court justices are sitting on the court, and the president is not uh, making law like the legislators, and he's just executing law. And so you have three divisions of government. Here, the king is the legislative branch, the executive branch, and the judicial branch. The king is the judge. And so here is the king on the throne, Thousands upon thousands, really the, almost like the, the human, humanity before him. And the books are open. Court is now in session. What does Daniel see? In verse 11. I watched. Then, because of the sound of the arrogant words of the horn, uh, because the, uh, I watched then, because of the sound of the arrogant words, the horn was speaking. The arrogant horn is the fourth beast. A horn that's coming out of this fourth beast in the vision in verses uh, 6 through 8. So as I continued watching in this big courtroom, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to the burning fire. So in the middle of the court session, this beast is killed, thrown into the fire. Verse 12, and for the rest of the beasts, there were three other beasts, their dominion was removed. But an extension of life was granted to them for a certain period of time. Now read Revelation if you want to get more into that. But here's our purposes, verses 13 and 14. I continued watching in the night visions. And what does he see now? So the beasts are removed. Some are given a little bit of time. The final beast was killed, thrown into the fire. Then what does he see? And suddenly, one like a what? A what? Son of man. This is the son of man. So this is the Danielic vision. When Jesus says, I'm the son of man, 
he's, he's harping back to this uh, in incognito. People are not thinking of this passage, but he's thinking of this passage. So here is a vision of the Son of Man. What does the Son of Man do? I saw one like a Son of Man, and he was coming with the clouds of heaven. So here's a man coming with the clouds of heaven, floating on clouds, basically as his chariot, so to speak. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. So here's a man floating on clouds real smoothly, like on a Tesla, real smooth drive, just smooth ride, right? Very quiet, just on a cloud, floating through the sky. He gets here to the Ancient of Days, and he approaches the Ancient of Days. And what, what is the Ancient of Days of sit, sitting on? A throne of what? Fire. And what's coming out of the throne? A river of fire, right? So here he's on a cloud, just floating on by, floating right to the Ancient of Days. A scary king of the universe, God. And he, he floats right to him, comes right to him. He was escorted before him. And then what happens in verse 14? He, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Why? So that those of every people, nation and language, should serve him. His dominion, the son of man's dominion, is an everlasting dominion. That will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. So here is God, the ancient of days, on his fiery throne, giving glory, giving dominion, giving rule, giving an unbreakable, unshakable, indestructible, forever eternal kingdom, giving it to a man on the clouds, the son of man, and he will reign forever and ever and ever. That's the vision. Now, oftentimes when you read prophecy, it usually goes vision and then interpretation, vision then interpretation. So when you think of it, who is the son of man? Jesus, Jesus that's your interpretation. And what is he given? Dominion, what's another word for it? Given what? He's given the kingdom, right? The kingdom of God. Here is what you say is Jesus given the kingdom of God. Now let's look at the actual interpretation. Go to verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was deeply distressed within me. And the visions in my mind terrified me. These four beasts and this last beast and then the beast getting killed in this courtroom and the son of man getting this kingdom. I approached one of those who were standing by and asked him to clarify all this. So he let me know the interpretation. There it is, the interpretation of these things. The, these huge beasts, four in number, are four kings who will rise from the earth. Four kingdoms. But the holy ones of the most high will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. All right, hold up. Verse 18, who receives the kingdom? In verse 18, the holy ones. The holy one or the holy ones? Holy ones. But who received the kingdom in the vision in verses 13 and 14? Who was on the cloud? A son of man. Not the holy ones. And what was that, what was that son of man given? A what? Kingdom. But here, it's the holy ones who are given the kingdom. What is that? I thought it was the holy one, not the holy ones. And then if you read on, you get to verse 21. As I was watching, this horn waged war against the holy ones and was prevailing over them until the Ancient of Days arrived. And this was the convening of that, that judgment day. And a judgment was given in favor of the holy ones of the Most High. For the time had come and the holy ones took possession of the what? Kingdom. kingdom. Who was given the kingdom there? The holy ones. And then you get down to verse 27. And you can read the whole vision later in the interpretation, but look at verse, 20, or verse 25. He will speak words against the Most High and oppress the Holy Ones. This is the beast. He'll oppress the Holy Ones of the Most High. He will intend to change religious festivals and laws. That's anti-Christ, so to speak, a beastly uh, cultural pattern in the world. And the Holy Ones will be handed over to the beast for a time, times, and half a time. That's three and a half times, if you're counting. 
Verse 26, but the court will convene. That's what we have in the vision. Here's the interpretation. The court will convene and his dominion will be taken away. The beast's uh, dominion will be taken away to be completely destroyed forever. Verse 27, then what? The kingdom, dominion, and greatness of the kingdoms under all of heaven. Okay, wait, back up before we finish the verse. Just remember in the vision, the, the court was convened and then the, the beast was there and then the beast was slain and thrown into the fire, right? And then what happened after that? Who came on the cloud? Son of man, and what did the ancient days of give to that son of man? Kingdom. So now here's the interpretation. Here the beast is being thrown away. He's destroyed, completely destroyed in verse 26. And now the kingdom, dominion, and greatness of the kingdoms under all of heaven will be given to the people, the holy ones of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will serve and obey him. This is really strange. The son of man will be given a kingdom in the last days. That's the vision. And the interpretation of the vision is that the holy ones, the people will be given the kingdom. What does that mean? Tuck that away in your mind because we're going to kind of come back around to that as we, as we do this Bible study today. So go back to, to Matthew chapter 17. So now Jesus is saying, don't tell anyone about this vision until the son of man, we just read about the son of man, until the son of man, who's supposed to get the kingdom, right? The king, until the son of man rises from the from the dead. Now, Jesus is going to call himself, he's calling himself the son of man. And in case you're saying, well, PJ, is he, does, he, does Jesus mean this son of man from Daniel 7? My answer is yes, from Matthew 26. You can turn there if you want, but listen to Matthew 26, 62 to 64. They're punching Jesus in the face. He's arrested. It's Thursday night. He's right there before them. And they're accusing him and accusing him. Their accusations don't even cohere with each other. They're just throwing everything they can at Jesus to, to charge him as guilty so that they can kill him. They're, they're leveling all these accusations at Jesus, and they say, don't you have anything to say? And Jesus just stands there silently. Not a word. Not a defense. They're saying dumb things. They're, they're, they're not even contradicting. They're, they're contradicting each other. Jesus can point out contradictions. He says nothing. He just stays quiet. And then in verse 62, the high priest stood up in, in Matthew 26, 62. The high priest stood up and said to him, don't you have an answer for what these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Ah, now a question. Tell us if you're the Messiah, the Son of God. Before God, swear to God. Tell the truth. Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? Yes or no? Here's Jesus' answer. You have said it, which basically means yes. But I tell you, in the future, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So here's Jesus claiming not only to be the Messiah, that's clear enough from the transfiguration and uh, Jesus and Peter and disciples, right? He's saying, I am the Danielic son of man. I am the king and you will see me. You're going to kill me, but I'm going to rise from the dead and you're going to see me riding on the clouds coming with power. You will recognize that I am actually the Messiah that you doubt that I am. And so here's Jesus Fulfilling this, Jesus is the son of man who comes with authority, but his authority will come in its fullness only after dying, dying for sinners and not just staying dead for sinners, but rising from the dead. In his resurrection, Jesus is declared the son of man, the king. He's declared the son of God according to Romans 1, 1 through 4. In his resurrection, the spirit declares Jesus the son of God. And your only hope of being part of this kingdom is to recognize Jesus as your king. The kingdom is given to who? The son of man. And who's the son of man? 
Jesus. But in the interpretation, the kingdom is given not to Jesus, not to the Son of Man, but to the Holy Ones, the people. If you want to be part of the Holy Ones who receive the kingdom of God and reign with him forever and ever and ever, you must recognize Jesus as Lord and Savior. You must submit to Jesus as Lord and Savior. You must give your life to Jesus as your Lord and Savior and treasure. Christians, I have good news for you. God has given you the kingdom. The kingdom of God is yours. You're a part owner in this kingdom. You have a stake in this kingdom if you're a Christian. Because it's not just given to Jesus, but given through Jesus to all of those who are the people of Jesus. So now if you're not a Christian, I have good news for you. I have bad news and good news for you. The bad news first. The bad news is that God is holy and God judges sinners. He will stand on judgment day and every one of us here are sinners. All of us will stand before the judge and the books will be opened and your whole life is laid bare before God and he will judge you for every single one of your sins. It gets worse. Because he's infinitely holy, every single one of your sins deserves eternal condemnation and damnation under God's just and righteous and holy wrath and punishment forever and ever and ever. The Bible says in Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life because the wages of sin is eternal death. So if you're not, if you're a sinner, like I'm a sinner, this is the bad news you are going to hell for your sins. You will never, ever, you can never, ever be good enough for God. You can't do enough good things. I can't preach enough sermons. I can't love enough people. I can't love enough neighbors. I can't share the gospel enough times. I can't be a good enough church member or pastor. And you could never, you will never be good enough for God. You deserve God's wrath and judgment for your sins and your rebellion against God. That's the truth. That's the bad news. Now here's the good news. The good news is that God sent Jesus, the son of man, not just to get a kingdom, but to secure the kingdom, not just for himself, but for the holy ones. How? By dying on, by living for them, the truly holy life, by dying a holy death on the cross for sinners, for his people, the holy ones, and for, for and rising from the dead. Through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, he secures the kingdom and eternal life and forgiveness for all of his people. That's the gospel. That's the good news. So if you're not a Christian, this is good news for you. You don't have to die in your sins. You don't have to go to hell. You will go to hell unless you repent from your sins, turn from your sins, and turn to Jesus and receive him as your Lord and Savior. Call on Jesus to save you, and he will save you from your sins. He will sanctify you. He will make you a holy one, not because you're holy in yourself, but because as you are united to Jesus, the way a, a, a wedding happens and a husband is wedded to his wife and the wife is wedded to the husband and now all of a sudden, whatever assets and liabilities they have in debits and credit in terms of their money, once they get married, it becomes one. It becomes, and so they share the credit or the debit all together, right? In the same way, when you trust in Jesus and repent from your sin, all of your sin is counted to his account and all of his righteousness is counted to your account and guess what? His death covers your sin. And his righteousness gives you the right standing before God. Your only hope, sinner, to stand before God is not how good you can be and how many times you go to church. Your only hope is to get on your face, on your knees before God and plead with Jesus to save you from your sins and to give yourself to him. That is the gospel. 
Okay, so here's the son of man who is the king. I'm calling you to give yourself to him. But the, the command of the sermon is tell people about Jesus. This passage is not telling us to do that. Does the son of man tell us to tell people about Jesus in the book of Matthew? Yes, most popularly. Um, Matthew chapter 28. So go to the very end of Matthew 28. Let's camp here for the rest of this point before we go to point two. This is how we tell people about Jesus and why we tell people about Jesus, why we're commanded to. Matthew 28, nine, um, Matthew 28, it's also in the back of your bulletin because it's our send-off verse, actually, on page 13. But um, Matthew 28, at the very end of this book of Matthew, the Son of Man is telling us to tell people in verse, tw- verse 19, he says, go therefore and disciple all nations. Go influence people towards Jesus. Go shape them and teach them about Jesus. Cause them to be learners. Teach them about Jesus so that they are being discipled into Jesus and toward Jesus. That's the command. But because he's the son of man, look at verse 18. Because he's the son of man who rose from the dead, what does he have? According to verse 18, Jesus came near to them and said, all what? All authority where? Has been given to me where? In heaven and on earth. In the whole universe, who has all authority? Jesus has all authority. So when the son of man, the risen son of man tells you, go make disciples, go disciple people, go disciple your neighbors and the nations, go tell people about the risen son, all authority of heaven is commanding you to go tell other people about Jesus. That is your calling and your blessed privilege and obligation. So the son of man is the one commanding us. And then the son of man gives us the scope of this command in verse 19. Go therefore and disciple whom? All nations, all ethnic people groups. Not just your language group, not just your neighbors. Yes, disciple your neighbors who speak your language, who are in your ethnic people group. Disciple them, but not just them, all nations. Which means if you're going to follow Jesus, You need to tell people about Jesus, not just here locally. You need to have a holy and righteous burden to tell people about Jesus globally. That is your responsibility. That is the Son of Man commanding you. You have a responsibility to ensure or to work so that the gospel is told to people of all ethnic people groups. So do your part. And then the Son of Man clarifies the aim in verse 19. What's the command here? Go therefore and what? Make disciples of all nations. Now... It's not just inform them, but to disciple them and shape them, to actually form them. Now, this is where I want to change. I need to tread carefully here, but I think make disciples is not as good of a translation as disciple all nations. It is a verb, and I think disciple all nations is actually a better way of translating it. So you, see, you hear me quote it all the time when I say disciple all nations. I want to encourage you to, to embrace that translation. Now, here's why. Um, the command is to disciple all people, to disciple your neighbors and the nations. Uh, not make disciples. And why not make disciples? Because if, if I'm good at, if I succeed in making disciples, how do I know that I've succeeded in making disciples? You can count what? Count a person, a, a believer, who has now become a Christian and converted and is now a disciple, right? So then what's the command to me? I need to convert people. If the command is to make disciples... I might be tempted to. Now, I don't know. You don't have to say this, and you don't have to think this. And if you have good theology, which you probably do if you've been around this church for a while, you don't feel like it's your job to convert people. But, but the, 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 the wording there can lend in that direction, right? To make disciples. It's not, like, it's not as if it's in your control, and it's in your power to convert people. But it is in your control, and it is in your responsibility to what? To disciple people. To disciple non-Christians to influence them towards Jesus, to share your life with them, to share the message of Jesus with them. That is within your power. Their response is not within your power. It's not within your your scope of responsibility in that sense. But for you to disciple them, 
for you to tell them about Jesus and share your life and open up your life with them so that they can know about Jesus and have the opportunity to be influenced toward Jesus, that is within your responsibility. And so the aim here is to disciple people. That's within your control in terms of your responsibility. I don't want you to have the illegitimate burden or a feeling that conversion from non-Christian to Christian is your, is your responsibility. That will hinder you from discipling because then you're gonna overcalculate. Ah, if I tell them this, they might reject Jesus and then I'm not gonna be faithful to making a disciple because I've actually pushed them away. Well, maybe you haven't. Your job is to disciple them. Your job is to form them towards Jesus, not to control the outcome. So, so let's continue clarifying the command. What's the command to you from, from Matthew 17 and Matthew 28, 19 and 20? Not just disciple all people, but further, furthermore, besides discipling all people, what else should you do? Baptize them, immerse them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then not only that, verse 20, what else should you do? What else are you responsible to do? Teach them to what? Don't just teach them information. Don't just teach them systematic theology or biblical theology or memory verses. Teach them to what? Obey or observe God's commands. That's what discipling is. You're not after information finally. You need information. You need truth. But you need formation. You need character formation. You want to change what they do. You're called to teach them joyful obedience so that they will do the Father's will on earth as it is done in heaven with joy, with enthusiasm, with worship. And so you're to disciple people and you're to disciple all nations. So to summarize, the, what is the command here of, this, of the sermon? It's Matthew 28, 19 really is the command. And Matthew 28, Matthew 28 19, and here's the command. You are to, you're to make disciples, you're to disciple people so that disciples are immersed in the name of the triune God. They are obeying the triune God and they are gathering in churches, um, obeying the Lord's Supper and baptism in the name of the triune God. And then they are sending and being sent around to all the nations to disciple more people to be immersed and obedient and to gather in churches. And then sending more people from those new churches to gather and obey and immerse and follow Jesus. And, it, and on and on it goes. That is the purpose, brothers and sisters, of your life. That is why you are not dead yet. You still have work to do. You still have great commission work to do before you die. So application here, tell others about Jesus, share the gospel, call people to follow Jesus, be free of the burden and responsibility of their conversion falling on your shoulders. Gospelize them. Share your life with them. Gospelizing and discipling is already heavy enough burden. Don't feel the burden of having to convert them. Call, them, call people to get baptized if they follow Jesus and partner with your church family. And then when you're there, what we're gonna do today with Lane, immerse these disciples in the name of the triune God, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then gather these immersed believers into churches. And then call them as Christians and churches to follow the great global enterprise of making Christ known to all ethnic people groups of the world. Follow Jesus in building his church, centering your life on Jesus, embodying Jesus with your church family and expanding Christ's presence to the whole world. Tell people about God's son Jesus and disciple people toward him. First reason, because the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Second reason, why you need to give your life to tell people about God's Son, Jesus. Because, look at verses 10 through 13, back to Matthew 17. So go back to Matthew 17 in your Bible. Look at verses uh, 10 through 13. My answer here is why? Because in verse 12, or verse 11, it says, Elijah's coming and will restore everything. And Jesus says, Elijah has already come. So my second reason why you need to disciple all people, why you need to devote your life to telling your neighbors and the nations about Jesus is because Elijah has restored all things. 
Okay? Elijah has restored all things. That's what it says in verses 11 and 12. Elijah will restore all things. In verse 12, Elijah has restored all things. So you can't tell people about Jesus until you understand who Jesus is and what he's done and what he's doing. He died on the cross for sinners. He rose from the dead. But brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian and you're already familiar with that basic story, I want to take you from step one to step two. I want to expand your mind now. So I need you to track with me here. We're doing some biblical theology work here this morning. I need you to expand your mind on what Christ actually did when he rose from the dead. What did Jesus actually do? I want to fill in more thoughts there, more theology for you, so that you disciple and tell people with boldness about who Jesus is and what he's done. So let's set it up with a question here. Verse 10. Here they are on their way down from the mountain. Jesus says that he's going to suffer and die. Hey, don't tell anyone until the Son of Man rises from the dead, which means I need to die, which means I need to get arrested, which means I'm going to suffer, right? So as they're walking down, they're like, oh, why do you keep saying they're going to suffer? Stop with the suffering, dying talk. Stop with the negative talk, Jesus. We just saw your face glow like the sun. We just saw your white, your clothes, bright white. We just, um, we just saw your form transfigure. You, you transformed into a different form. We just saw that. Stop with this dying talk with people killing you. You're more powerful than everyone. And Jesus says, yeah, but I'm going to die. And I'm going to rise. And so then they say, okay, verse 10. So then the disciples ask, well, if you're, if you're saying you're going to die, then why then do the disciples, the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Okay, if you're the Messiah and you're going to die, then why must Elijah come first? And then uh, Jesus says, Elijah will come and restore all things. So why, why do they raise this question? Um, they raise this question because they're thinking, if, if Elijah's going to come first, as the scribes say, and if Elijah's going to restore all things, then why will you have to die? If he's coming first and all things are restored, we just read it in Malachi chapter 4 and Malachi 3, God is going to come. He's going to restore all things. He's going to get rid of all the evildoers and there's going to be a perfect world. God's going to do that. If God's going to do that and it's going to come through Elijah before the Messiah comes and you're the Messiah, well, if he's restoring all things, then why are you going to die? That doesn't make any sense. So they ask the question, why must you suffer? In other words, they're getting their end times calendar and timeline confused. Just like Christians today, right? <laughs> what is the end times? What's the calendar? What's the timeline? Right? Oh, I don't know. You know, Jesus is going to come again. They're getting their timeline confused here. And so Jesus is going to tell them, he's going he's to answer their question and teach them more about the significance of the resurrection of Jesus and the restoration of all things. So to do this, I want to take uh, four steps here. Okay, here are the four steps to unpack this restoration of all things. Number one, prophecy. Number two, fulfillment. Number three, implication. And number four, application. Okay? If you're going to think about Elijah coming to restore all things, let's, get, let's understand the prophecy. Let's understand the fulfillment of this prophecy. Let's understand the implications of this prophecy and then the application of it. So what is the prophecy? Look at verse 11. Here's the prophecy. Elijah is coming. So there's a prophecy. He is coming in the future from the, prophecy, from the prophetic utterance. He is coming in the future and he will do what? He'll restore all things. Now, uh, Peter Jung just came up here, Pastor Peter came up here and recited, he, he read to us Malachi 3.1 and Malachi 4.5. Now in Malachi 4.5, it says Elijah is going to come in the future. This is written 400 years before Jesus. Um, he's going to come and he's going to usher in the last days. He will calm God's wrath and he will restore the tribes of Israel. That's the prophecy. They, well, the prophecy in verse Malachi 4.5 is he's going to turn the hearts of the father to the children. So he's going to lead people into repentance. But um, the Jews took this prophecy and they expanded it. Have you ever asked the question, what are some of the signs of the end times? Actually, let me ask you right now. 
If the end of the world is going to come, what are some of the signs you, you're going to be looking for? Just name from your Bible understanding or any, any of you, you don't have to be Christian. Just when you see the doom and gloom of the world, what do you think is going to happen before the end of the world? Just start shouting out popular ideas. Wars. Mark of the beast. Antichrist. Come on, there's more than that. The rapture. Okay, what else? Lawlessness. What else? Natural disasters. Earthquakes. What else? Tornadoes, okay, tornadoes, sure. That's under natural disasters. What else? <laughs> zombies. Some people think zombies, right? The apocalypse, zombies. Um, that's not a Christian answer, but that's some people's answer, zombies. Um, a one world government, have you heard that? A one world government. What else is being said popularly? One world religion. Yeah, oh man. Uh, water turning into blood. Mark of the beast, famine, a lot of people dying. Uh, a huge population's dying in the end, right? Running out of resources, great global wars, right? So all of these are the ideas, right? Of what's gonna happen at the end of the world. For the Jews in this time, one of their things is Elijah is going to come. And according to Malachi 4 or 5, which Peter read, he's gonna turn the hearts of the father to the children. He's gonna lead to repent. He's gonna lead the people to repentance. But notice that's not what Jesus said here in verse 11. What does verse 11 say? Elijah will come and what? Restore what? Restore all things. Restore everything. Uh, the verse that Peter read is, he will come and not restore. The verb is turn. Turn, cause people to repent and turn back to God. That's the prophecy. Jesus quotes it as, restore everything. Why? Because in one of the books in the Apocrypha, it says that Elijah will come and restore Jacob. Restore Israel. Okay, so I want you to build this prophecy out. First, it's lead people to repentance. That's Malachi 4, 5. Then the, the Apocrypha says, restore the people of Israel, restore Jacob back to God. Jesus takes it even one step further and says, not just turn people to repentance, not just restore the nation of Israel to God, but restore everything, all things. You guys see how it's building here? Jesus is taking it, but he's actually extending it. He's universalizing the prophecy. Yes, Elijah will come. And he'll come first at the end of the time. You're going to see Elijah and he's going to come and he's going to restore everything. Okay, that's the prophecy. You guys get it? That's the prophecy that Jesus is working with here. And so, um, so some people say, okay, how was this fulfilled? So let, let's move from prophecy to fulfillment. Verse 12 says, so if, if Elijah is going to come to restore everything before the end of the world, verse 12 says, but I tell you, that's what they're saying, that Elijah will come and he is. But I, Jesus, tell you, Elijah has what? He's already come, and they didn't recognize him. So here's the fulfillment. Jesus is saying, guess what? Guess what, boys? Elijah has already come. He's here. He came. In other words, the prophecies you've been waiting for where Elijah's going to come and fulfill everything or um, restore everything, he already came. That's done. And they're like, wait, what are you talking about? You're talking about dying and rising. You're saying it's done. Like they're confused. And Jesus oftentimes in teaching intentionally confuses them to raise their attention to ask more questions. Okay. So here he is. Elijah has already come. Now, let me read to you some commentators here. So like uh, D.A. Carson will say, restoring all things must not be taken absolutely. It's not a restoring of everything. And I'm going to disagree with them gently, not a hardcore disagreement, but let me just give you their thing. So some commentators like D.A. Carson says, uh, he's not going to restore everything absolutely. John Calvin says, he's not going to perfectly restore things, but what Elijah's going to do is he's going to hand things over to Jesus and Jesus is going to complete, complete the work that Elijah has begun. Um, 
and, and, and that, might be, that might be true, um, this restoring of all things being, being a, a partial handoff, but I'm, I'm struggling with the words here because Jesus is saying in verse 11 that he will restore everything. And so I just, again, I'm not saying thus says the Lord here. I'm gonna give you my interpretation here, but I'm struggling with this thinking he means everything. So I wanna talk about what that means. Um, now remember, in Malachi 4.5, the verse Peter read, what was the prophecy? It wasn't restore everything. It wasn't restore Jacob. It was what? Turn the hearts of the, lead the nation into what? Repentance. Now, um, okay, so that was, that was it. That, that's, the, that's the call. And so look at verse uh, 12. Let's see the fulfillment. Elijah has already come and they didn't recognize him. On the contrary, what did they do to Elijah? They did whatever they pleased to him. In the same way, the son of man is going to suffer at their hands. So who's this Elijah? Did he come already? Who is he? Look at verse 13. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken about who? John the Baptist. So who is Elijah? Who is Elijah to come? John the Baptist. Now, did John lead people to repentance? Yes or no? Yes. Did he turn Israel back to God? Uh, so this is partially fulfilled in this restoring of Israel, restoring Jacob. Um, now, what did John do? What was his ministry? We actually have a picture of it back here, sort of. Right? What did John do? <laughs> in the, you, you new members didn't know the unveiling here, right, of our... Now you're really glad you remember at BBC, right? Um, so, so what we have back here, what, what did John do? He baptized people, and it was a baptism of what? Repentance. So here's John saying, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming. Repent from your sins. Turn your hearts back to God and symbolize it. Show it publicly by being what? Baptized or being immersed in the water. And as people are getting immersed in this water of repentance and coming out of the water, they are showing, they're turning, and they're showing who this new people of God, this new Israel, this renewed new covenant Israel, prophesied in the Old Testament, who they're going to be. So here is John immersing people as a mark of repentance for those willing to respond and showing publicly the new Israel who is coming up out of these waters. Just like they came out of the waters of the Red Sea in the first redemption. Now in the second exodus, they're coming out of these baptismal waters to show who the true nation of Israel is or the new Israel. So let me just do some application here before we move on. Church family, we need to continue and understand the practice and significance of baptism. Uh, we need to baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're taking John's baptism, which was not Jesus' baptism. And after Christ rose from there, we're taking that baptism. We're upping it to the baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what does Bethany Baptist Church do? We baptize people who say that they've trusted in Jesus and turn away from their sins. If they have a credible public profession of faith. And so Lena's gonna come later. She's gonna give her testimony. Our church members have already heard it. And we are going to, our brother Jim, her dad is gonna immerse her in the water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you're going to see another person come up out of the water as a public identifiable person who is part of the restored Jacob, the restored Israel, the restoration to come. That's what's happening this Sunday as you see a baptism taking place. Okay, so John is doing this. He's fulfilling at least, not the everything yet, but he's, refer, he's, re, he's fulfilling the, the repentance part. He's, he's sort of fulfilling the, the um, restored Jacob part because he's, he's immersing people and they're coming up out of the water. So some people say, okay, um, yeah, that's true, but um, there's still an Elijah to come to the future. And let me just say right here in our church, we might have members who disagree with my interpretation here. That's okay. We have some members here who might say, PJ, I don't think this is fully fulfilled in John the Baptist. 
this Elijah prophecy. I think when I read Revelation 11, three through six, and the two witnesses that are coming up, I think Elijah, there's still a future Elijah to come at the end times. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. If that's your interpretation, that's a respectable interpretation. Um, I would respect you for it. I mean, you have good commentators who agree with that. I just don't think that that's what it means by restoring everything, okay? So I'm gonna give you my interpretation, not a partial fulfillment, but when Jesus says in verse 11, Elijah is coming and will restore everything, I think he means everything comprehensively. Now, it doesn't have to, but I think that. Now, how is that happening with John the Baptist? How does John the Baptist fulfill everything? I admit I have to do some work here to convince people of this. So let me do it here. How is everything restored by Elijah? Well, here's what I mean. The restoration is not absolute and comprehensive. So it's not everything in a comprehensive sense, but it is everything is restored in this work of Elijah in a preparatory sense, in an effective sense, and in principle. What I mean by that is like in principle, it has already been um, accomplished, but not in its fullness. So for example, um, how many of you have not, how many of you who own a home have not yet paid off your house? Raise your hand. If you're still doing house payments. Okay, good. Some of you still pay off your house. What are you doing? Now you own the house in a sense, right? You own the house and in principle you own the house. It is your house. It's yours. It's not like partially yours. You own the house in a sense, right? But in a sense, until you fully pay it off, there's still, there's still more to come before you're comprehensively owning the house. But in principle, the house is Yours, you own it, you possess it. So it's the same idea here. In, a, in principle, everything is restored. But comprehensively, it's not gonna be final, like it's not gonna be comprehensively completely every detail restored until Christ returns, okay? That's what I'm arguing here for, that in Elijah's coming, that in principle, everything is restored. Why? Why am I saying that? Um, okay. The kingdom of God has come, and God, Jesus, has, Jesus has brought the kingdom. Here's a, here's a biblical theological question for you. When, has the king, when did the kingdom come? When did Jesus finally come and bring the kingdom, kingdom to earth? Give me a few answers. Year zero. Year zero when he was born? Yeah. So it's incarnation. When Jesus was born, he brought the kingdom to earth. Give me another answer. At the cross. At the cross. When he died and said, it is finished. He brought in the kingdom. Someone said resurrection. So maybe after the cross, when he rose from the dead, when else did he bring the kingdom? Pentecost. Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit comes down 50 days after Jesus rose from the dead, the kingdom has come. When else might the kingdom have come? His baptism. Remember when he's casting out demons? He says, if, if, you, see the, if you see me, Jesus even said this, when you see demons being cast out, the kingdom of God is among you. So the, the very ministry of Jesus is, is showing the kingdom of God. There's one more that you guys didn't mention, ascension. Okay, so you got incarnation, baptism, life and ministry of Jesus, death of Jesus, resurrection of Jesus, ascension of Jesus, Pentecost. In any of these, the kingdom has come. And you know what? You, you know which one is the right biblical answer? All of them. All of them together and even all of them individually. You can say legitimately, the kingdom has come. Or to use other words, everything has been restored. In principle, in any of these, incarnation, uh, ministry of Christ, death of Christ, resurrection of Christ, ascension of Christ, second coming, or not second coming, um, Pentecost, in any of these, you could say in principle, restoration has come. Now, but it doesn't say Jesus, the son of man, is going to restore everything. It says who's going to restore everything? Elijah. Elijah. 
Who's Elijah? John the Baptist, not Jesus. So PJ, you're saying, okay, I get that. Jesus is bringing the kingdom. Jesus restores everything. But it doesn't say Jesus. It says Elijah, who's John the Baptist. How does John the Baptist restore everything? Here's my answer. John the Baptist is part of, that, of the incarnation life ministry. In that, in that segment, John the Baptist has a significant role. What's his role? Not before incarnation, but after incarnation, before public baptism and public ministry, what is John the Baptist doing? Preparing the way, doing the baptism of repentance, and pointing to the Messiah. That is an integral, necessary part of Jesus' coming, of Jesus' bringing the kingdom. So just like you could say incarnation brought the kingdom. The death brought the kingdom. Resurrection brought the kingdom. Ascension brought the kingdom. Pentecost brought the kingdom. John the Baptist's ministry brought the kingdom. He already came. And everything is restored in principle in the work of John the Baptist, Elijah, who's tied to the ministry of the Messiah himself. Does that make sense? You guys track it with me? So, so what, what I want you to see here is that everything has been restored. So let me, let me say one more thing about resurrection. I'll apply it and then we'll close in prayer. Okay. Or we'll, yeah, we'll apply it. So one more thing here, um, one more thing on, the, on theology. Um, when Jesus rose from the dead, let's talk about the resurrection because that was the first point when he rises from the dead. When Jesus rose from the dead, he restored all things. I want you to think about the resurrection here. I want to fill out your understanding of resurrection. When Jesus rose from the dead, he restored all things. Why? It says in Acts 13, 34, he fulfilled all the Old Testament promises by rising from the dead. In 1 Corinthians 15, so just, I'm going to build here. So he fulfilled everything Old Testament promises by rising. Secondly, he is called the first, anyone know what he's called? First what? First fruits of the resurrection. And if he's the first fruits of the resurrection, then there's going to be second fruits of the resurrection. And there's going to be more following fruits, subsequent fruit of the resurrection. So in Jesus rising from the dead, he is the first fruits of the the resurrection to come. Because you're going to rise from the dead and this whole earth is going to be resurrected or renewed. But then you go on from first fruit to the final fruit uh, of Revelation 21, 22, when the whole new earth comes. Now, in Jesus, in his body, I want you to see two things. So I'm going to have you turn to two passages, okay, from Paul. Colossians 1 and Ephesians 1, okay? Colossians 1 and Ephesians 1. Turn to Colossians 1. Colossians chapter 1 and then Ephesians chapter 1. Colossians 1 in your Bible. Turn there. In the new earth, in the final fruits, is there going to be any sin? Is there going to be any conflict? Is there going to be any need for reconciliation? No, because all things will be reconciled, right? Between you and other people, is there going to be any conflict within your own body? No, you're going to have a glorified body. Is there going to be any conflict between us and the and nature around us? No, everything will be reconciled. Listen to Colossians 1, 19 and 20. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus... And through Jesus, through his cross now, to reconcile what? Everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So in the cross of Jesus, everything has been reconciled. So what you see on the new earth, what we're seeing in the future, guess when that got reconciled? When he died on the what? Cross. If I have an argument with John and I sin against John, and then I ask him for forgiveness and we get reconciled, guess when, that re- guess when we have the power to have that reconciliation? On the cross. Every reconciliation that's subsequent from the cross comes from the cross, including the new earth. So when Christ died, all reconciliation is complete. It's done. Everything that will be reconciled is reconciled in heaven and earth is reconciled in who? 
in the death of Jesus Christ. That's why we're so big on the cross. Now, what about the resurrection? Turn to Ephesians 1. Last one here. Ephesians 1. Turn to the left. Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 verse 10. In God's plan, at the right time, God plans, and God has planned, to bring everything together where? In Christ. Everything together in Christ. What things? Both things in heaven and things on earth, all together in who? Again, last, verse in, or last words of verse 10? In Christ. So in Jesus is all things brought together, or the new creation. So in other words, brothers, sisters, friends... In Jesus' body, in his resurrected body, is the new creation. In his person is the new creation. You, so if anyone is in Christ, he's a what? How did you become a new creation? Once you were united to Jesus or put in Jesus, you being in Jesus makes you a new creation. In other words, in principle, PJ became a new creation in principle when Christ rose from the dead, before I was ever born, in a sense, Right? Not only, did, not only did all of us become new creations when Christ rose from the dead, but even the new heavens and the new earth was completely fulfilled in principle on Sunday when Jesus rose from the dead. When Mary was weeping and saw Jesus rise from the dead in seeing the glorified Lord, she has seen all of, all, everyone who will ever be saved, all of their new creation, all those new creations and the whole new creation, new heavens and new earth in the end, she's seen it all in a person. In Jesus Christ. So Jesus restores all things in his death. He reconciles all things in his death. And he restores all things in his resurrection. So brothers and sisters, when you gather on the Lord's day, you're not just celebrating the past, you're celebrating the future. You're not just celebrating the future, you're celebrating the present. Look around, I mean, um, Ross said with the ruined sinners, right, from the song. He said, when you, look, when you sing the song, look at each other. Ruined sinners to reclaim. I'm looking here at a bunch of ruined sinners who have been reclaimed and are new creations. Why? Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And when he rose, all you ruined sinners, your hope was, was finished. Everything was restored in the death and in the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, so let's apply it here and then we'll close. Going to Matthew 17. Application. Implication and application. The implication is this. Uh, let's just finish up the verses here. Matthew 17, verse 12. So they, Jesus, uh, John the Baptist was Elijah. And what happened to John the Baptist? He, before he died, he was what? Arrested thrown into prison, and then eventually died by what? Beheading. They killed John the Baptist. They murdered him. And then Jesus says, what's the implication of that? In the same way, the Son of Man is going to what? Suffer from his hand. He's going to die on the cross. So, Because remember the disciples' question? If Elijah's going to restore all things, why are you going to die? Because it has been restored, and it will be restored in my resurrection. But even still, what happened to Elijah? He died. He was arrested and died. And guess what? The Son of Man will also... Die. So the implication is, even though things have been restored, if Elijah's going to die, John the Baptist, then so is the son of man. So Jesus must go to the cross. Jesus must suffer. That's the implication. If, 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 if Elijah had to suffer, Jesus must suffer. And now here's the application to close. Here's the application for you. If Elijah suffered, and if, you, and if, if Jesus suffered, then everyone who follows Jesus will have to what? Suffer. If you're going to tell people about Jesus, guess what's going to happen to you? Some people will listen, but guess what else is going to happen? Some people won't listen. Not only will some people not listen, some people will resent you for telling them about Jesus. Some people will actually push you away 
when you tell them that Jesus is God's son and that they owe all of their allegiance to him. Some people will push you away when you tell them that they're a sinner. Some people will push you away when you tell them that God is holy and God will judge. Some people will push you away when, they say, when you say Jesus is the only one who died for sins and rose from the dead and he's the only way. Some people will push you away when you say you have to repent from your sins and trust in Jesus. Some people will push you away and you will suffer. We just prayed about early rain covenant church in China where, where brother Zai, I think his name is, is suffering. Why? Because he will keep telling people about who? about Jesus. And if John the Baptist suffered, and if Elijah suffered, and if the Son of Man suffered, then guess what? When you tell people about Jesus, you will suffer. Do you still want the kingdom? Do you still want to be a Christian? Lane, do you still want to get baptized? Do you still want to publicly identify and say, I am with Jesus. I am for Jesus, even if it means suffering. Because if you're a Christian, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross every day, and follow Jesus. That's basic Christianity. That's true Christianity. And that's the application. We need to be ready to suffer for and with Jesus. So let me close with the application of Christian, non-Christian. Jesus is gonna restore all things. So here it is. All your deepest desires and your truest hopes, even if you're not a Christian, I wonder what you desire, what your dream is for your life. Your deepest hopes and dreams are actually fulfilled in the restoration of everything. And that comes through Jesus Christ. So all your hopes and dreams, good news for you, Christian, and good news for you, non-Christian, you can have all your dreams, your, your best dreams your right dreams. You can have all your right and good and best dreams if they're true dreams because they're fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Your hope lies in Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. And let me talk to the children last before I close. Children, thank you for being quiet, kids. Thank you for being quiet and letting your parents and others listen. Let me say something to you children briefly here. Kids, don't you get scared of dying? Some children, I, all of my kids go through this, you get scared of dying. And not only that, kids, um, kids have talked to me, we're not, they're not always scared of dying. Kids, aren't you scared that one day your mom and dad are going to die? That's scary. I'm scared of that. My mom and dad, by God's grace, are still here, but I'm scared. I'm still scared that they're going to die one day. But kids, that's scary. It's scary to die, and it's scary that our parents and those we love will die. But I have good news for you, kids. Jesus restores everything. Jesus will make your parents live again. Jesus has given your parents eternal life if they're Christian and they will never die. They're gonna rise from the dead and you can be with them forever. Everyone who trusts in Jesus and repents from their sins has a Jesus who is stronger than death. A Jesus who's stronger than being scared. A Jesus that's stronger than fear. So kids, I wanna encourage you to trust in Jesus. Do any of you kids know the first catechism question of our church? What is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to God and to Jesus the Messiah. That's our hope. So tell people about Jesus. Why? Because the Son of Man rose from the dead. And tell people about Jesus. Why? Because Elijah and Jesus has and will restore everything. Let me close with a story from 2 Kings chapter 7, verse, verse 9. You can turn there if you want, but just listen. So 2 Kings chapter 7, there's a siege. Now, the, the city of Samaria was being besieged by um, Aram, the nation of Aram. I think it's Aram or Amalek. I think it's Aram. So um, the Amorites. So, so they're, they're being besieged in 2 Kings 7. You can read the story to get the right nation. And as, as you're besieging a city, what you do is you cut off all the supplies, right? You surround the city with your army. No food gets in. 
No food gets out. You can't go to the restroom outside of the city anymore. There's no uh, plumbing back then, right? You can't go outside the city. So all your, all your bathroom stuff is happening in the city walls. There's no, you can't go out to get water. You can't go out to get food. You basically choke out a city by surrounding the city with your army until they die or give up, right? Because if you keep invading the city, the, the people just sit with a bow and arrow on the walls. They just pick you off. So this, the, the army just waits on the outside until they give up. So Samaria was in this situation. It was so bad that one mom said to another mom, we're going to die of food. Let's kill our kids and eat them. Tonight, we'll kill my kid and, and cook the kid and eat him. And then tomorrow, we'll cook your kid. And, and, then, and then we'll eat them. And so um, the first night, they cooked. The, she's like, okay. So they, they cooked their child the first night, killed him and ate the child. Then the next night, it's like, okay, now it's your turn. And then she couldn't find the child. The mom, the mom ran away. And saved her child, but they ate, she ate the other child. And so they're telling the king and the prophets, and they're like, oh, my goodness, Lord, what are you doing here in our city? This has happened. So there's extreme famine where they're killing their kids just to eat. Okay, that's how extreme it is in, in 2 Kings chapter 7. Then um, as, um, as, the situ- as, the, as the situation continues, they lose hope. And Elisha says, tomorrow, everyone's going to feast. And oil is going to be dirt cheap. And we're going mo- to have all this food. And we're going to have all this money. And, every, and when the guard says, that's ridiculous. How can that happen? There's an army around us. And Elisha says, because you don't even believe, you're going to get trampled. You're, you're going to die tomorrow. You're not even going to see it, but it's going to happen tomorrow at this time. Okay, so what happened? If there's a big army, here's what happened. Um, lepers with diseases, do they live in the city or outside the city? Outside the city. And they're there chilling. Oh, no, oh, yeah, they're like in a quarantine part of the city. And they say they're, they're in the city, but they're like in a quarantine part of the city because there's a they're war. And they're like, you know what? We're going to die of our leprosy and our skin diseases in here. And nobody's talking to us anyways. Let's just go out and let, let's just go get food from them. We're starving. And if they kill us, well, we got leprosy. We got skin disease. Anyway, we're going to die. Let's just go out and do this. So they go. So I think it's four lepers. They just get out of the city and they go to the camp. Like, oh, well, we're risk our lives. Let's get some food. So they go to the camp, and guess what they see? Tents and food everywhere. And guess what they don't see? Not a single soldier. The camps are abandoned. All the food, all the resources are all there, and there's no, there's no, no, no military. Why? It says because God put fear on them, and God scared them away in the middle of the night. So there's no, there's no, um, there's, there, there's all this food for the whole city, right? Everyone's starving. And here's what it says in, in um, so now they, now can you imagine if you're one of the four and you've been starving for days, what are you going to do? You're going to feast on everything, right? You're eating, and then you're trying to hide all the money. You're trying to store everything for yourself. Get it, hoard as much as you can, right? And then here's the, here's the moral of the whole story. At the end, they feel guilty. And here's what they say in 2 Kings 7, 9. They look at each other and say, what we're doing is not right. We're not doing what is right. And they say, this is a quote from 2 Kings 7, 9. Today is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until morning... Until morning light, our punishment will catch up with us. So let's go and tell the king's household. Today is a day of good news. Redemption, food, feasting, restoration. This is not the day to hoard to myself this goodness. This is the day of good news. What we're doing is not right. Let's go and tell the king's household and the city that there's food, not just for us, but food for who? Food for everyone. Brothers and sisters, Elijah has come and fulfilled everything, restored everything. Jesus has come and restored everything. Jesus is coming to restore everything. Today is not the day to hoard it with BBC and just talk about edification with each other. It's not to hoard Jesus for yourself. Today is the day of good news. Today is the day for us to go out to our neighbors 
into the city and tell people that Jesus has restored sinners to himself. Tell them the good news. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to hope in Christ. We pray that sinners would repent and trust in Jesus. We pray that believers would renew their faith in Jesus, that we would renew our commitment to tell people about Jesus and disciple people toward Jesus. Because today is the day of good news. Today is the day of gospel. Today is the day of celebrating and sharing salvation with everyone. We pray that you'd help us to do that as a church family. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. All right, friends, we're gonna take the next five minutes to um, three or four minutes to share with each other a takeaway from the sermon as we prepare for baptism. So go ahead and uh, if you're a guest here, feel no obligation to share, just listen in on a conversation. But members, look around and talk to people about what, what's one takeaway.